This morning we're going to begin uh, by talking about restraints, things that hold us back. Uh, sometimes restraints are things that actually work for our good, and sometimes they're things that we really don't like. Uh, I was very thankful for a restraint this week when I was driving. Uh, I was headed up, wanting to drive, kind of going from my office back to my house. And we've all had this experience before where you're driving along and you see something on the road where you're going, oh no, that's a problem. <laughs> and the end of this story is like, I'm okay and my car is okay, like don't worry. But I saw a large tire hurtling down the road right at me. Like I'm coming up wanting to drive and here it comes and I'm going... Like, I'm on the phone, hands-free, right? Like, I'm not texting. And I'm like, that, what? Like, oh my goodness. And so there's a motorcyclist in front of me. There's another guy behind me. And I kind of check both, hit the brakes. And in that moment, I'm thankful for the restraint of my brakes, which do restrain my speed. And I'm thankful for my seatbelt, right? Thankfully, the tire shoots in front of all of us because we slow down. And as I drive by it, I look in my rearview mirror, and I see, like, this cascade of leaves falling across the road because the tire slammed right into a giant tree. So nobody was hurt. The tree was hurt, but I think the tree will be fine. And then later on, I saw this guy on the side of the road, not 100 yards up, in this big, like, tricked-out SUV with, like, rims and dubs and all that. And he happened to be missing a wheel. (laughs) I thought, oh, okay. We know where the source is now. I was very thankful for the restraints of seatbelts and brakes, as were the drivers around me. Sometimes restraints work for our good. The basic premise of a civil society is that we need to be restrained. Boundaries are good. That's why we have laws. We're a nation of laws. If your neighbor steals from you, you are thankful that there are laws that you can follow so that you either get your stuff back or that your neighbor's prosecuted. A lawless society, a society without restraints, can't offer that. Most of the time, we connect restraints to negative things. We connect them to things that we really don't want. I have a friend who uh, works for a nonprofit, and this person uh, didn't get to complete their college education. They had some stuff come up, and they weren't able to do it. They are now restrained in the pecking order and how high they can rise in that organization because they don't have a college degree. That's a restraint for this friend of mine. When you get married, this is a good restraint, but some people, including myself, uh, it's just tough. You agree to restrain yourself from using intimacy, from using your ability to connect with other people in a way outside your marriage. You just agree to that when you get married. And anyone who's married and honest will say sometimes that's hard. Sometimes there are lots of temptations otherwise. It's a good restraint, but I know it scares a lot of people off just from the premise of marriage. We're talking about restraints today because our story is about a man who's lived with restraints none of us would want. None of us would want what this man has been through. There are social restraints, spiritual, emotional, physical, for many, many years. They just piled on top of each other like garbage being thrown into a dumpster. And this is the next step that we're taking in our sermon series uh, called Encounters with Christ. And our premise of this sermon series is when we encounter Jesus, we see the kingdom. When we encounter Jesus Christ, as these people in these stories we've been looking at do, they don't just meet a man, they don't just meet a prophet, they don't just meet a person, they experience the kingdom of God. In other words, when ordinary people see Jesus, they see something spectacular, something they can't explain. It's heaven available right now. It's a new way of life. It's God's rule and reign in technicolor all around us. We see the kingdom when we encounter Jesus. Every one of us has our little kingdom, a little place where we can do what we think is right. So whether that's school, whether it's your work, whether it's your home, you have a kingdom where your will can be done. Your kingdom, my kingdom, is meant to integrate into and belong to the kingdom of God. And the more our kingdoms belong within the range of God's kingdom, the better off our lives are. 
So today's text, we're going to look at a conflict of the kingdoms, the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom where really, really bad stuff is happening, and the kingdom of God where people are meant to be set free and live as God intended. There's a three-act play today, and so you can see this kind of outlined in your bulletin in front of you. The way we're going to frame this, our thesis for the morning, is that we see the kingdom when our shackles, our restraints are broken and we're transformed for mission. We see the kingdom when our shackles are broken and then we're transformed for mission. And the three acts of the play are outlined in your bulletin, setting the stage, pigs in power, and then shackles are broken. So let's set the stage. Where is all this happening? This is happening on the Sea of Galilee. I've got a picture to show you guys. Beautiful lake in the middle of Israel. A couple of fun facts about the Sea of Galilee. It's about two-thirds the size of Lake Washington. It's about the same depth. It's the largest body of fresh water in the Middle East. It's dropping precipitously because it's the largest source of water for irrigation and for drinking around that area. And uh, it sits at uh, a couple hundred feet below sea level. It's the lowest elevation body of fresh water in the entire world, interestingly enough. So this whole scene is playing out on the side of the Sea of Galilee where tons of things have happened in Jesus' ministry, including our story last week about the boat and the storm. And Jesus comes to the side of the lake that actually doesn't belong to his people. It belongs to the Gentiles. It's a neighborhood of people that he wouldn't have been familiar with, that wouldn't have been familiar with him. And that's where he encounters this man who's possessed by demons. The Bible actually doesn't give him a name, but y'all know how I roll. We're going to give him a name. His name's Duncan, okay? Duncan the demoniac. And I'm not trying to trivialize his condition as much as I'm just trying to personalize him. Like, let's just call the guy a guy. So what do we know about Duncan? Duncan is from the city. This comes out in verse 27. We'll go into more detail about that in a little bit. Because of where this takes place, the far side of the lake, largely a Gentile portion of the lake, there's another thing we learn about him, is that he would have been from a different culture than Jesus. So he didn't grow up like Jesus, didn't grow up kind of in the country in a backwater town, and he's from a completely different way of thinking about the world. This will also come into play later on. So what's City Mouse doing out in the country? We need to do a little detective work to figure out the situation. The text tells us he came from the city, but at some point in his life, something terrible happened to him. A demon, or rather many demons, the name legion actually in the Greek refers to a contingent of Roman soldiers that could have been as high as 5,600 soldiers. So just picture in your mind 5,600 entities pulling and grabbing at a person. He had this demon enter into him, many demons, and his life has been completely taken over. This stuff always makes me squirm, by the way, and especially when I see it in like movies and TV shows, like for years and years, and this is still the case, remember the original Ghostbusters, when two of the sort of supporting characters get possessed by demons? I can't watch that part. Like I just, ugh, I gotta leave the room. Like I don't like that. Maybe you're like that. Now, somebody was probably thinking, yeah, of course that makes you go, ugh, because that's not real. Like demon possessions, that's science fiction, that's fantasy. You know, we're scientific, we can measure stuff. Like that, that can't possibly be true. We're over that. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but now's a good time to mention it again. Let's be very cautious about throwing to the side any sort of spiritual ailment that the Bible takes very seriously. Let's be very careful about how we approach these things. If we want to keep growing, if we're followers of Christ, if we want to keep growing in our faith, we want to learn to be more like Jesus, you need the Bible. And the Bible takes things like demons and the presence of evil very seriously. It doesn't trifle around with this. And this would take a really long time to unpack. You want to buy me a cup of coffee? I can talk about this all day. But only in the West, 
Only in the developed world have we gone to the arrogant degree that we have where we say, we're scientifically minded, we're enlightened, we understand modernity, evil and demons, like, that's okay. That's for other people to deal with. If you go into the developing world, where there's less abundance and affluence, they take demons in the presence of evil very seriously. And if you still don't believe me, go to a hospital and ask anybody who works at a hospital, hey, have you ever encountered something here that you just can't explain? That there's something maybe spiritual going on in a hospital? I guarantee you that person, if they, <laughs> if they have had any experience in a hospital, will say yes. When I actually worked at a hospital when I was in seminary, this was kind of a test, and I didn't know it was a test. I walked up to uh, the ward of this particular floor, and I started talking to him, and he said, hey, let me ask you something. You, you're one of our chaplain interns, right? And I said, yeah. And I said, do you, he said to me, do you believe that there's kind of a spiritual nature to people's ailments? And I said, absolutely. Like, there has to be. And he said, good, because there have been some people from your department that don't believe that. So be careful. Whenever we go into the hospitals or whenever we go into places where people are trying to be healed, it's a place where two kingdoms are coming into collision, the kingdom of the enemy and of evil and the kingdom of light and healing. That's why I believe hospitals are powerful, holy places because they're a place where the kingdom of God is actually being made right in people's lives. So go with me on this. Let's at least entertain the idea that demons are real, that they can really mess with people. And that brings us back to Duncan. The text tells us that the demons have, in their cruelty, driven him away from the city and into the country. If he lived in the city, he had a home. Now he's homeless. He's living among the tombs, it says. So he's popping in and out of caves. He's sleeping outdoors. He's not clothed. All these things symbolize how far he's been removed from the normal confines of society. His body is probably different. He's probably not eating a lot, so he's probably skinny. He's probably very frail. He's got all kinds of sores and things from these shackles that are on him. He's half naked. And if you're reading this text and you have any familiarity with addiction, you're, you're kind of putting two and two together here. I cannot read this text or any text like it and not think about the struggles of people I love who have faced addiction. Now, I'm not saying that addiction and demon possession are the same thing. They're not. They often go hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. There are elements of the torment that Duncan is experiencing that has happened in every addiction story I've ever known. Now, I've obviously known families and individuals who've walked through addiction through my pastoral work, like people that I've known in my congregations who've been very vulnerable with me. Hey, I've been struggling with this. I've been 10 years sober, but I'm very, you know, this is a bad season for me. And those are powerful moments. But we all know that the most powerful way that we can encounter anything like addiction is when it happens in our own family when it happens to people we love. And that has certainly been the case for me. There are members of my own family who I love deeply who have wrestled with alcohol and drugs and prescription medications. And if you have not had that experience, you are in a blessed, tiny minority of people that I've talked to because most of us have had some kind of encounter with addiction. Addiction shackles us. That's the point that I'm trying to make. If what Duncan is going through is something that has happened to him, if it is something that he just has sort of stumbled into, addiction really has the similar effect on people. It isolates us from healthy community, which Duncan has experienced. He's not in the, con- in the city anymore. Remember, he's in the country. It encourages self-destructive behavior, right? Anyone who's experienced addiction knows you just keep coming back to the thing over and over and over again. It obscures the image of God in us. It takes away the beauty and the wonder of how God has made us, and it sort of obscures it and throws it into darkness. 
It demeans us as people, it steals our joy, and it atrophies our bodies and our minds. There is a lot that is happening to Duncan that reminds me of addiction. So go back to our thesis. We see the kingdom when our shackles are broken and we're transformed for mission. That implies that we know what our shackles are. So if you're thinking of someone you love who's been through addiction, you have seen shackles kind of writ large. You've seen someone be unable to go to a party without having a drink in their hand. You've seen someone wrestle with addictions in a different way and kind of watch that define their life. Our addictions and our shackles aren't always these substances. They're processes, or we turn good things into things that shackle us. We can take things like our work, jobs that are good, companies that treat us well, and say, great, I'm going to give 90 hours a week of my life to this company. And your company will gladly take that. But your family won't like you very much. And you'll miss out on opportunities to be with people who love you. That can become a shackle. A good job can become a shackle. Having healthy kids... Having kids who are smart, having kids who are strong, easily becomes something that enslaves us, that becomes a bond. Making good grades was one of my shackles when I was a high school kid. Having the newest toy, whatever it is, the new car, the new house, the new spouse, the new job. These things can shackle us and atrophy us from where God wants us to be. So my question is, what are my shackles? What are the things that are holding you back from the life that God intends? I'm assuming the negative definition of shackles right now, the negative definition of restraints. Is there something that God would love to use in your life, but you are holding it back or it is being held back through some means and you know it and you just, you can't get through it. A shackle in my own life uh, is just this struggle I have with acceptance and rejection. I've told you guys before that when I was a teenager, I was bullied, I was kind of ostracized socially. Uh, so as a result, a lot of my own kind of behavior and social patterns are just really kind of junked up by all of that. I have a tendency to sort of go along, to get along, keep people happy, keep the peace, whatever that looks like, and this is still something that God is working out in my life. It is something that I can easily be shackled to. Does this person accept me? Do they approve of me? Do they like me? I know I'm the only person that struggles with this, by the way. Ultimately, our shackles will carry us down to the depths if we do not hold them out to God. And we're going to have an opportunity before we come to the communion table to really just hold out to God, like, God, I feel like this is holding me back right now. I feel like this is something that is disrupting the kind of life that you would have for me. Would you take it? So be thinking about that. If you want to be real brave, you could even write something out in your bulletin and just offer it to God as we come to the table in a moment. So that's setting the stage. That's kind of what we need to know so we can really enter into this story. Now let's talk about pigs in power. The text tells us that at some point, Jesus has said to Duncan, demons, get out of him. Leave him alone. They don't listen the first time, which I think is appropriate because they're demons. Why would they listen to Jesus? But then he comes back to them a second time and something changes. Listen to verses 32 and 33. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. The key word I want us to focus on for a moment is begged, begged, which appears in verses 31 and 32. It also appears in the end of the passage, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Begging is not a word that many of us used often to describe ourselves. When's the last time you begged for something? 
most of us don't have to be in a position of begging because when you're begging, you're truly desperately asking for something out of a place of poverty. You have no power to achieve the things that you beg for. You don't beg for things you already have. The last time I got really sick, without having going into too much graphic detail, laying on the floor of my bathroom going, oh God, please make this stop. That's begging. I've had panic attacks. I have begged God, please release me from this moment. This, I hate this. Let me go free. I have no power when I'm laying on the floor of my bathroom to make myself better. So I'm begging for an outside power to come and rescue me. We're in a posi- when we're in a position of begging, we're about as far removed from the seat of power as we could be. Our little kingdom is crumbling. The range of our effective will ain't doing us much good. We are stunningly impotent when it comes to the power of God's kingdom to rescue us. And this is the good news. When we find ourselves in a position to beg for Jesus for something for us or for someone else, it always brings life. Begging for something from Jesus always brings life. Can't guarantee that when you beg someone for help. Can't guarantee that when you beg your employer not to fire you. Can't guarantee that when you beg your girlfriend not to leave you. But you can be guaranteed that when you beg God for something, he will bring you life. Why? Because begging makes us vulnerable. Begging makes us dependent. We drop our puny little assertions of our power and we simply come to God and say, I got nothing. Can you rescue my marriage? Can you rescue this kid that I'm so worried about? Can you rescue my way of life with my, jo- with my job? When the demons submit to Jesus' power, they go into the pigs, and the pigs give us an incredible image of what sin and shackles always do, do to us. They always drive us toward death. The logical conclusion of evil is always death. The logical conclusion of evil is always death. That's why we have to take shackles so seriously. Because left to their own devices, all they're going to do is drag us down into death. And when we beg God, when we beg him for help, like Jesus responds to these beggings here, life comes from it. So this really demands that we ask the question, where do we see begging in our day? Where do we see people completely without power asking for those who do have power to come and speak life to them and rescue them? Every one of us has encountered the homelessness crisis that is facing our region. And you can't drive around the city and not see people begging, asking for help. Please help me. I need some food. I need some water. I need a place to stay. And thankfully, the church is called to be a part of that solution. That is why when we follow Jesus Christ and we see somebody begging, we are tugged, we are pulled, we are moved toward that. We can't just turn a blind eye to it. With our partnership with Pantry Packs and Lake Washington Schools Foundation, we are working to address the needs of hungry kids who might otherwise be begging when they go home on the weekends and there's no food at home. That's why we have that bin right out there in the lobby. That's why there's food in there, so we can help kids be free from the shackles of hunger. I don't think it's a stretch to say that our schools in general are in a position where they're begging for help. We got great schools around here. All the school districts that I know represent in this room are some of the best in the state, and yet the needs persist. You may not know this, but there's actually a couple of Title I schools in Lake Washington School District, and a Title I school simply means that 80% of the students who go to that school qualify for free and reduced lunch under a federal grant. 80% of kids could not afford to buy lunch at a particular school. That's a place of need. That's where those kids might be begging, and we have the opportunity to step in and help. 
Not because we need to use our power or make ourselves look good, but because our community needs us. When you came in, you were given a bulletin. Inside your bulletin is a flyer about Community Serve Day. Can you hold that up for me? Can you pull that out? Make a little fan wave. Did everybody get one of these? There should have been one. Well, you got <clears throat> you got something else. Okay. That was going to be a cool moment. Oh, well. <laughs> Go back and grab one of those flyers. Whatever. We'll get there. Grab one of those flyers and sign up for Community Serve Day. August 26th, three weeks from today, we're going to be at Robert Frost Elementary School right in our backyard, and we're going to bless and serve that school. We're going to take care of the grounds. We're going to help teachers get their classrooms ready. We're going to prepare them to have the best year they have ever had as a school, and we're going to partner with all sorts of churches across the east side to do this. If you're involved with Jubilee Reach Serve Day in the past, you know what we're doing. We're going in there to help them get a win. And I want every one of us to be a part of it. Every one of us needs to be there. These are kid-friendly projects, so bring your kids, bring your grandkids. It's going to be awesome. And you can sign up online. You can fill out one of the paper forms and drop it in the welcome plate. We want to make sure that everybody in our church knows that our schools need us, and we want to be there for them to be the presence of Christ. The demons beg Jesus to release them because he has the power to do that. He has the power to rescue you and to rescue me from our shackles, to rescue us from the things that would hold us back, to rescue us from addictions, to rescue kids from having to be hungry. What could his power do in your life this week? How could you dream of him doing exceedingly abundantly more than you could ask or imagine? And even if you got to beg, he will bring life to you. Okay, so that's part two, pigs and power. Now let's talk about the final part about shackles being broken. This is kind of the end of the story where Duncan is uh, healed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The people see that he's healed. He's back in his right mind. The text tells us he's wearing clothes again. He's not running around anymore. And there's two things that I want to highlight from this final section very briefly. Because this defies our expectations of what a happy ending is supposed to be in a story from the Bible. Duncan is not back in the club and he doesn't get what he wants. He's not back in the club, and he doesn't get what he wants. Both of those things seem like it's a total bummer for him, but it's not. Not if we take a closer look. The text tells us, this is not back in the club, the text tells us that Duncan is healed, and that the people who come to see what's happened, they come to see Duncan, they go, oh, they put two and two together. You're that guy that had all those problems, and now look, you're sitting with Jesus, and you're healed. You might think that their reaction is, great, well, come on in, we're glad you're back, you know, we're so glad you're healthy again. But the text tells us that their reaction is one of fear. Fear. They're afraid. And then the text goes on to say that they're also afraid of Jesus, and they ask Jesus to leave. Why would they do such a thing? Why would they observe such a powerful miracle and say, no, get out of here, we don't need you? A lot of times when we see things we can't believe, we just want to get away from it. When we see a miracle or when we see something happening, we just go, this, this is just breaking all my rules. I, I need a minute. I can't see this. That might be a reasonable expectation. Back to our addiction metaphor. If you've walked with someone through addiction and then they turn the page, they achieve sobriety, and they say something, this isn't every person who's experienced addiction, but a lot, they'll say, I'm done with that. I'll never go back to that again. If we're honest, there's a part of us, when we're not the person experiencing the addiction, where we go, sure, I'll believe that when I see it. And it's, it's not unjustified in a ways, because we've seen someone give their life over to this addiction, it's been robbed from them, we've seen them become atrophied and broken. There's a cynicism there, it happens. 
but it doesn't give us permission to write that person off. And I think that's a little bit of what the people in this text are doing. They're looking at Duncan and going, okay, you've been healed. Great. Sure. We'll see you in six months. We'll believe that when we see it. We don't get to turn toward that. We get to turn away from that because Duncan's role is not to be happily integrated into this country community. Remember, he's not from here. Where's he from? The city. He's a city kid. He don't belong in the country. This isn't the community where Jesus wants him to be. That's where we get into the second part where it says he doesn't get what he wants. What does he want? Look at verse 38 with me in the text. He names it straight out. The man, Duncan, from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him, that he might get to follow Jesus, but Jesus sent him away. That, that's what he wants. He wants to be able to follow Jesus. And he should expect this, right? When Jesus has invited the disciples to follow him, he said, come follow me. I'll make you fish for people. Come be with me. Get on my journey. Get on this discipleship train. Why does he say no to this man that's had a miracle happen to him? Because he's not given him a place to follow him around. He's given him a mission. He's given him something that he's got to go do. Jesus says this to him in verse 39, return to your home. And declare how much God has done for you. Where is Duncan's home? We actually have a map of his home. According to Mark's gospel, Duncan was from an area called the Decapolis. Decapolis just means ten cities. And these were cities that were on a particular side of Israel. And they were all kind of linked together through trade and kind of similar cultures. They had a lot of autonomy from the Roman Empire, so they were able to define themselves in a particular way. Think any major metropolitan area you've ever lived in, right? Any sort of city where there's a lot of densities and there's a lot of pockets where there's just different cultures at work. If you live on the east side, the culture of the east side is a little bit different than the culture of the west side. We know this. So Duncan is from this metropolitan region. And remember what we learned about him at the beginning. He's from the city. He's not a Jew. He understands the Greek worldview, this philosophical concept called Hellenism, that would have been very, very different from what Jesus or any of his disciples would have encountered in their growing up. Who is the perfect guy to send to the Decapolis? Duncan. Who's the perfect guy to go and be an ambassador, a missionary, a spokesperson for the movement of Jesus in the Decapolis? It's not somebody from the country necessarily. It's not somebody who's unfamiliar with the Greek way of life that these cities would have known so well. It's Duncan. And guys, this is the work of the church. The church is always called to be a part of the city and of every part of the world. So that what is spoken of Jesus, that the movement of Jesus can continue. If you could make the movement of Jesus walk and talk in the Decapolis, you could make it walk and talk anywhere. And so have churches been doing this work in Seattle, and in New York City, and in Chicago and Los Angeles, and the great cities of the world for centuries. And we're a part of that now too. And that's really good news. That is really, really good news. Duncan is the perfect ambassador to the Decapolis. Is this the job he's always dreamed of? Probably not. Would he feel ill-equipped for it? Yeah, everybody who's called into leadership in the Bible is ill-equipped for it. Everybody except Jesus. But think of the story that Duncan can tell to the people who knew him, who watched when the demons took over his life, who tried to help him, who walked with him, who worked with him, who were his neighbors. He comes back and he's healed and they know him and he knows them and he can speak their language and he understands their values. And guess what? His story has credibility. His story is believable. His story is something that the people who loved him want to lean into. 
They blow through their cynicism when they see, you've really been healed. And you're still that guy that we knew. And you're speaking about this Jesus. We need to know about this guy. Are we so different in our day? Are we so different, Bethany? Every one of you has a set of skills, has training. Doesn't matter if you went to college. Doesn't matter if you had any of this other stuff. What matters is you have the ability to uniquely speak about Jesus to the people within one degree of separation from you. So I love that we have lots of engineers in this congregation because I am not an engineer. I do not speak engineer, but a bunch of you do. And guess what? You know how to make the gospel make sense to other engineers. You know how to communicate it in such a way that lands with your colleagues, lands with peers, lands with spouses where they go, yeah, I get it. And I would never be able to do that. Trust me, I don't speak engineer. If you're a physician, if you work in the medical field, same kind of deal. You know how to use your skills, your culture, your training to make sense of the gospel in other people's lives. Teachers can do this, and yes, even lawyers can do this. A challenge for all of us this week is that if the God of the universe has touched your life, brought you freedom, let you go from your shackles, how could you leverage that story? How could you make that walk and talk in the lives of people that they know your language and you know their language so that they can just be drawn into his mission, drawn into what he's trying to do? Community serve day, that thing you were supposed to have a bulletin insert for and you didn't, that's a great opportunity to say to someone that you speak their language, hey, come do this with me. That all we're doing is taking care of a school. We're not handing out gospel pamphlets. We're not proselytizing. We are just going to go be with people. What if you invited someone to join you in that? What if you said to one of your coworkers, come on, let's do this together. That is a way for us to leverage the influence that we've been given so that like Duncan, we can speak of the power and the transformation of Jesus Christ in ways that make sense to our neighbors. Friends, it's uncomfortable to talk about our shackles. It's uncomfortable to talk about the things that burden us and that have broken us. It's uncomfortable to talk about addiction, especially if you've walked through that. But it is glorious, and it gives glory to God to be able to point toward his restoration and say, you know what, I gave my life to the bottle, to alcohol, for 10 years, and I'm sober, and the power to do that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you know anybody who has walked through addiction, you have heard that story, and you know it's true, and you know it's real. Duncan had a story like that to tell. What's the story that God would have you tell? If you follow Jesus Christ, you've had to work through some shackles or God is working on your shackles right now. There's got to be a way to share that. There's got to be a way to communicate that. It doesn't mean you've got to be good with words. It doesn't mean you've got to say all the right things. It just means your story has a power and a potency to it that the kingdom needs. The kingdom needs your story about your shackles, friends. So, as we come to the table, I want to invite you, all of us, to take a moment and consider our shackles and our restraints. I'm going to invite the band to come up here with me, and those of you who are serving communion, I'd invite you to come forward as well. This is a great opportunity to pray, and so Josh, our prayer team lead, is going to go back to the couches. And if at any point during communion you want to just go back and pray with someone and have them pray over you. As soon as communion's over, Josh will be back there. He's going to be serving communion, but he'll be in the back in a minute. Go pray with him. Go pray with somebody in this room. And I want to invite all of us to pray with me now as we hold out shackles and restraints to our loving God. Would you join me in prayer?
Mighty God, thank you for how you freed the man in our story today. Thank you for how every person who follows you has a story of how you have freed us. And we didn't deserve it, and we didn't earn it. And many of us, all of us, wrestle to this day with things that would still love to burden us, whether it's acceptance, whether it's looking smart, whether it's grief that we have over a loss that we still can't make sense of, where we prayed and we begged and we asked you to heal someone that healing didn't come. God, help us. Take even those most painful broken moments and reshape them. Bring your transformation. And even though it's not easy, help us take courageous steps toward the mission that you have for us of being a church that blesses and serves and cares for this community in a way that points to the kingdom of God, points to your rule and your reign. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table, would you hear us as we pray silently and hold out to you those things that have been restraints and burdens to us. Hear us as we hold out our shackles to you. We thank you, God, that no matter what burdens and shackles we have faced, not a single thing that could ever be come up with by humankind is unbreakable by you. You are the Redeemer. You are the restorers of souls. So restore our souls now, and at this wonderful meal, restore us and equip us. Set apart this time in these elements. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, we come to the table of Jesus Christ to be with him in a special way, and he is with us. He is present here. He is present in the bread and in the juice and in the fellowship that we enjoy as we come forward. And we do this because the scriptures tell us that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he offered it to his friends, to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he poured out the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As the apostle Paul later reminds us, as often as we eat this bread, As often as we drink from this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. This is the table of God for the people of God. And so these friends, these men and women are here to serve you as you come to the table. Come down through these center aisles and then back along the sides. We have elements that are gluten-free. If you have any allergy concerns, those are in the smaller baskets. Come and take the bread. And when you're ready to uh, take the bread and eat it, you're welcome to do so. Take the cup. And please return to your seats, and in just a little while, as is our tradition, we will drink the cup together. Come forward and receive from the bounty of God these good gifts for the people of God. As you're prayerfully ready, please come forward.